Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, coming at you just a couple days past... Christmas, my least favorite holiday, and we are now in that liminal period at the end of the year between calendar pages when one year flips over to the next. We explored a little bit of coastal Georgia today. As a Georgianologist, it is incumbent on me, of course, to explore Georgia, and today we went on a three- Hour tour, a three-hour tour. I say that literally we took a boat out for three hours. The weather, however, did not start getting rough. The tiny ship was not tossed. Um, this is a three-hour excursion to sort of take you through the marshlands around Tybee Island, which is... I would I would venture to say kind of the Cape Cod of Georgia, or at least the Savannah area where I am. It's a it's an ocean community uh, full of you know little crab shacks and crummy hotels and you know gift shops that you don't know how they stay in business and tourists and what have you. But there's also a full time community there, and there's also a really lovely beaches and an interesting ecosystem, which we learned all about today from Captain Malcolm on his little flat-bottom skiff. Captain Malcolm took us in and out of the different little inlets there, and we saw all kinds of birds, and we saw, including a, an American bald eagle family, that they, they'd built their nest up there in the trees. Massive conglomeration of sticks and grasses and who, who knows what else they used to make the thing, but it's just enormous. 
seemed as big as maybe a federal jail cell, you know, but open air. So it's got that open air concept. And uh, they were just kind of swinging around the nest. I don't think there were any eaglets in there yet, but the mom and the papa, presumably, are just sort of getting things ready. And then, of course, we saw a bunch of dolphins, just dolphins just swimming there in the waters, hanging out, wild dolphins, neither friendly nor unfriendly, indifferent to our presence, I would say. But we, we tried to maneuver you know, as close to them as we could get, they weren't really having it. They weren't mean about it, but they were like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. We're good. We're good where we are. And then we learned all about, you know, how these little, they call them hammocks or forms, these land masses and the barrier islands. And we learned about the tides and it was pretty interesting. Uh, Was it three hours worth of interesting? I can't say that it was. I can't in all honesty say that it was, but the weather was gorgeous. The company was good. I was out there with Martha and Elijah. My daughter has gone up east or up north, I guess, to the northeast to visit friends for New Year's Eve. So she departed this morning. She'll be back for a couple days before she returns to her college. And so uh, we finished the day with, of course, how could you not seafood? Man, were we hungry for seafood by the time we got done in all the, all the waters there. Had a delicious seafood late lunch slash early dinner and uh, returned to the Haunted Mansion. The holiday has been pleasant. It unfolded the way I thought it might, which is I dread it, I dread it, I dread it, and then it comes, and it's actually quite nice. We went to a beautiful Catholic mass uh, over there at St. John, a big cathedral there, just a few blocks away from where I live. Gorgeous old cathedral. I mean, not how old, not that old in in European terms, but, you know, fairly old for American terms. And uh, Martha's like, who's going to come to Mass with me? And every year I'm like, ah, fuck, I don't want to go to Mass with you. I'm not interested. But this year I thought, well, you know what? It's a big cathedral. I've never been inside. It could be cool. And uh, glad I went because it was lovely. The place was packed. We were masked. Not everybody was masked. I would say less than half of the people were masked, but we were masked. And, uh, but they had a terrific, like a a great organist, beautiful pipe organ, and then a terrific selection of instrumentalists, primarily brass, it seemed like, to accompany all the music. And we sang Christmas carols and, and the, the uh, bishop there made a point of welcoming people from all faiths, which I liked. But then the best part, the best part after, you know, you do about an hour of mass, and uh, the best part is the, the priest, the bishop spoke first before the service and the priest, you know, conducted the service. But at the end, the priest said, hey, by the way, when you go outside tonight, you're going to see basically like a wall of styrofoam boxes. And when you get out there, take one of those styrofoam boxes because inside is a cake from Savannah, Savannah Candy Kitchen. They donated all these, somebody, well, they didn't say who, he said somebody, anonymous donor donated all these praline cakes hundreds of them. And we go outside and we take a styrofoam box and inside is a giant cake, like an eight inch cake, probably three layers of, uh, of cakey goodness. So I, I converted to Catholicism on the spot. Why wouldn't you after that? Of course, I'm trying to watch what I eat a little bit because it's been, what, two years now of COVID? Two years of midnight bags of hint of lime Tostitos, followed by ice cream, followed by more Tostitos. So I've been trying to do a little bit better, you know, and so I, I really didn't have any praline cake that night. The next night, however, we got invited to a friend's house for some Christmas desserts, and I thought, well, I'm not going to have any. 
but then they had pecan pie out and they had bread pudding out and I thought I'm not I'm just not going to have any but then I just I took a slice of the pecan pie and once I took that I said well I might as well just have the bread pudding too and then once I did that I said well I might as well have another slice of pecan pie and then once I did that I said I should probably have some more bread pudding just to even things out and then we got home and I was like well I've already destroyed whatever progress I might have made over the last few weeks on my diet so I might as well try the praline cake that was good it's good praline cake. And then I was feeling kind of sick from all the sugar, so I had a half a bag of pita chips. We are on page 13 of Wuthering Heights, and my delight with this book has really only grown from the moment that we started. Uh, and last week, it reached a new apex because Mrs. Heathcliff, the daughter-in-law to the malevolent Mr. Heathcliff, uh, has just threatened to issue black arts upon the body of the servant Joseph. And it's unclear, as we left it last time, whether she was kidding or not. Joseph certainly didn't think she was kidding. He ran away quaking in fear. He's already got rheumatism. He doesn't want it to get worse. And there's a dead cow that apparently she killed with her black arts, and she's threatened to make voodoo dolls. And uh, when we last left Lockwood, he, he said, uh, I thought her conduct must be prompted by a species of dreary fun. In other words, like black humor. And now that we were alone, I endeavored to interest her in my distress. So we pick up with Chapter 2, Wuthering Heights. Mrs. Heathcliff, I said earnestly, you must excuse me for troubling you, I presume, because with that face, I'm sure you cannot help being good-hearted. Do point out some landmarks by which I may know my way home. I have no more idea how to get there than you would have how to get to London. I, I said that badly. I have no more idea how to get there than you would have how to get to London. So he doesn't, he's not asking her about the black arts, which is the first thing I would say. I would say, hold, hold on, sister. Just hold on a second, sister. Hold on. Would you hold on a second, sister? When you said you were going to cast a spell, uh, was that a joke? What, 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 what's going on with that? But no, he's, you know, he's stuck there in a snowstorm, and I guess he just wants to get home. Okay. Take the road you came, she answered, ensconcing herself in a chair with a candle and the long book, meaning the book of black arts, open before her. It is brief advice, but as sound as I can give. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you come on the road, maybe just go back on the road. You know, that, that does make good sense. I'm, I feel like I'm going to take a sip of my steaming hot cup of tea here. I got some English breakfast, which obviously doesn't go with this American novel, but, you know, we'll make do. Mmm, that is some delicious English breakfast tea. I'm recording at night, which is unusual for me. But, you know, we were on a three-hour tour all day, or at least for three hours of the day. It is brief advice, but as sound as I can give. And then he, uh, Lockwood says, Then if you hear of me being discovered dead in a bog or a pit full of snow, your conscience won't whisper that it is partly your fault? How so? I cannot escort you. They wouldn't let me go to the end of the garden wall. You. I should be very sorry to ask you to cross the threshold for my convenience on such a night, I cried. I want you to tell me my way, not to show it, or else to persuade Mr. Heathcliff to give me a guide. Who? There is himself, Earnshaw, Zilla, Joseph, and I. Which would you have? Are there no boys at the farm? No, those are all. 
then it follows that I am compelled to stay. Then you may settle with your host. I have nothing to do with it. I hope it will be a lesson to you to make no more rash journeys on these hills, cried Heathcliff's stern voice from the kitchen entrance. As to staying here, I don't keep accommodations for visitors. You must share a bed with Hareton or Joseph if you do. I can sleep on a chair in this room, I replied. No, no, a stranger is a stranger, be he rich or poor. It will not suit me to permit any one of the range of the place while I am off guard, said the unmannerly wretch. And he is really an unmannerly wretch. He's saying, look, you can't sleep here, uh, unguarded, in this room. What if I wake up in the morning and the silver's gone? Well, Heathcliff, you'll know who took it. That's, that's the answer to that question. You'll know where the silver went because the only new person in the room would have been Lockwood, you unmannerly wretch. With this insult, my patience was at an end. I uttered an expression of disgust and pushed past him into the yard, running against Earnshaw in my haste. It was so dark that I could not see the means of exit, and as I wandered round, I heard another specimen of their civil behavior amongst each other. At first... The young man appeared about to befriend me. I'll go with him as far as the park, he said. You'll go with him to hell! <laughs> Jeez, exclaimed his master, or whatever relation he bore. And who is to look after the horses, eh? A man's life is of more consequence than one evening's neglect of the horses. Somebody must go, murmured Mrs. Heathcliff, more kindly than I expected. Not at your command, retorted Hareton. If you set store on him, you'd better be quiet. Then I hope his ghost will haunt you, and I hope Mr. Heathcliff will never get another tenant till the Grange is a ruin, she answered sharply. Harkin, harkin, shoes cursing on him, muttered Joseph, towards whom I had been steering. He sat within earshot, milking the cows by the light of a lantern, which I seized unceremoniously, and calling out that I would send it back on the morrow, rushed to the nearest postern. Wait a minute. You don't just, you don't just take somebody's lantern. That's not right, Mr. Lockwood. That's not right at all. What would Mother say, Mr. Lockwood? She certainly wouldn't approve. Maester, Maester, he's stalling to lantern, shouted the ancient, pursuing my retreat. Hey, Nasher, hey, dog, hey, wolf, hold him, hold him. On opening the little door, two hairy monsters flew at my throat, bearing me down and extinguishing the light, while a mingled guffaw from Heathcliff and Hareton put the copestone on my rage and humiliation. Fortunately, the beasts seemed more bent on stretching their paws and yawning and flourishing their tails than devouring me alive, but they would suffer no resurrection, and I was forced to lie till their malignant masters pleased to deliver me. Then, hatless and trembling with wrath, I ordered the miscreants to let me out on their peril to keep me one minute longer, with several incoherent threats of retaliation that in their indefinite depth of virulent virulency smacked of King Lear. I said it before, I'll say it again. Funny book. It's funny. Nobody ever says, Wuthering, the great comic novel, Wuthering Heights. Nobody ever says that. I suspect there's good reason for it. But why don't they say, like, in the beginning, why don't they say, like, you know... Come for the comedy, stay for the romance and horror and black arts. That's that's the way this book should be marketed. I don't even know. If, I've never heard it marketed other than, oh, Wuthering Heights, it's a classic.
more laps per page than Jude the Obscure. That's how it should be marketed. The several incoherent threats of retaliation that in their indefinite depth of virulency smacked of King Lear. I mean, that's funny, right? Emily Bronte, humorist. All right, uh, well, let's take a little break. I'm going to sip some more tea. You know, try to get all our chuckles under control because we don't want to be, you know, gasping for air as we head to the, towards the second half of Obscure. Back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Obscure, and in that in that long break, I didn't even bother to quench my thirst. I'm not thirsty, I just like tea, so I'm going to have some more. Mm, mm, mm. Ah, English breakfast tea. How I love ye. Uh, so he's all pissed, you know, Lockwood's all pissed. He's saying, I, I, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. You know, why, I, you don't let me out of here, why, I'll, I'll sue you to the moors and back. I will. Or some such thing. I don't know. I don't know what incoherent threats of retaliation. So let's pick up. The vehemence of my agitation brought on a copious bleeding at the nose. And still Heathcliff laughed. And so would I, I suppose. And still I scolded. I don't know what would have concluded the scene had there not been one person at hand rather more rational than myself and more benevolent than my entertainer. This was Zilla, the stout housewife, who at length issued forth to inquire into the nature of the uproar. She thought that some of them had been laying violent hands on me, and not daring to attack her master, she turned her vocal artillery against the younger scoundrel, 
Well, Mr. Earnshaw, she cried, I wonder what you'll have a gate next. Are we going to murder folk on our very doorstones? I see this house will never do for me. Look at the poor lad. He's a fair choking. Wished, wished. You mustn't go on so. Come in and I'll cure that. There now, hold ye still. With these words, she suddenly splashed a pint of icy water down my neck and pulled me into the kitchen. Mr. Heathcliff followed, his accidental merriment expiring quickly in his habitual moroseness. I was sick exceedingly, and dizzy, and faint, and thus compelled perforce to accept lodgings under his roof. He told Zilla to give me a glass of brandy, and then passed on to the inner room, while she condoled with me on my sorry predicament, and having obeyed his orders, whereby I was somewhat revived, ushered me to bed. End of chapter two. So Lockwood, in chapter one, there at the house, chapter two, there at the house, over there at Wuthering Heights. Now let's see how, how, uh, Ms. Bronte contrives to keep him in their presence in chapter three, because clearly he has to remain in their presence or we have no book. Chapter three. While leading the way upstairs, she recommended that I should hide the candle and not make a noise, for her master had an odd notion about the chamber she would put me in and never let anybody lodge there willingly. (laughs) Okay, so now we got a haunted room of sorts. I asked the reason. She did not know, she answered. She had only lived, turning the page, she had only lived there a year or two, and they had so many queer goings-on, she could not begin to be curious. Too stupefied to be curious myself, I fastened my door and glanced round for the bed. The whole furniture consisted of a chair, a clothes press, and a large oak case, with squares cut out near the top, resembling coach windows. Having approached this structure, I looked inside, and perceived it to be a singular sort of old-fashioned couch, very conveniently designed to obviate the necessity for every member of the family having a room to himself. In fact, it formed a little closet, and the ledge of a window which it enclosed served as a table. Okay, what well, I'm trying to picture what this what this thing is. So it's a, a large oak case, right? Squares cut out near the top, right? Resembling coach windows, okay? So he goes towards it. He looks inside, and it's some sort of old-fashioned couch. All right, so I guess you open it up, and then you sit on it, very conveniently designed to obviate the necessity for every member of the family having a room to himself. So maybe it's like, you can, maybe it's like a futon. You can sleep on it. You know, it's like a Murphy bed of sorts. You, you can kind of pull it out. In fact, it forms a little closet, and the ledge of a window which it enclosed served as a table. Okay, fine. I slid back the paneled sides, got in with my light, pulled them together again, and felt very secure against the vigilance of Heathcliff and everyone else. So he's, he's, he's like, he's kind of ensconced himself inside this case. He opened the doors, got in, then closed the doors. And that's why not every member of the family needs their own room, because it's like a little cubicle. It's like a little sleeping cubicle. Clever, I think. Mm, 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 mm. I'd like to see one of those. The ledge, where I placed my candle, had a few mildewed books piled up in one corner, and it was covered with writing scratched on the paint. This writing, however, was nothing but a name, repeated in all kinds of characters, large and small. 
Catherine Earnshaw, here and there varied to Catherine Heathcliff, and then again to Catherine Linton. In vapid listlessness, listlessness. Okay, so er, uh, Catherine Earnshaw, right? Catherine Heathcliff, right? And then Catherine Linton. Okay, so the younger dude, that's he's an Earnshaw, and right, and then everybody else is a Heathcliff, and we and we haven't met any Lintons yet, and we're not sure who Catherine is. Fine. In vapid listlessness, I leant my head against the window, and continued spelling over Catherine. Earnshaw, Heathcliff, Linton, till my eyes closed. But they had not rested five minutes when a glare of white letters started from the dark, as vivid as specters. The air swarmed with Catherines, and rousing myself to dispel the obtrusive name, I discovered my candlewick reclining on one of the antique volumes and perfuming the place with an odor of roasted calfskin. So, what is he seeing? He's seeing white letters started from the dark, as vivid as specters. The air swarmed with Catherines, and rousing myself to dispel the obtrusive name. I, I really don't understand what he's seeing. He's seeing, like, the letters of the name Catherine just sort of written out in the air. And then he discovers his candlewick, candlewick uh, on one of the volumes and kind of burning the book cover. Uh, okay. I snuffed it off, and very ill at ease under the influence of cold and lingering nausea, sat up and spread open the injured tome on my knee. It was a testament, in lean type and smelling dreadfully musty, a flyleaf bore the inscription Catherine Earnshaw, her book, and a date some quarter of a century back. Okay, so, Catherine Earnshaw, Catherine Earnshaw, might this house have belonged to her. Perhaps she, the Earnshaw, grew up here, right? Married Heathcliff. He took over the house because now they're a couple. She died, right? Um, and then the 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 other Earnshaw is uh, is was uh, was Hareton Earnshaw was like uh, you know a princeling of this place um, to the manor born and cannot be kicked out. And then uh, Mrs. Heathcliff, the younger married Heathcliff's son, who now has gone missing and is probably dead, but we don't know why. It's all very mysterious. But you know what I like about this book is page after page after page. It's like new information, new information, new information. And Emily isn't telling us dick, you know? She's, you know, I mean, she, you know, she's, 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 she's letting us discover it along with Lockwood, you know? She's not giving us any extra information. We're having to piece the clues together the same as he's trying to piece the clues together. We don't know nothing about nothing. All we know is what we see through Lockwood's eyes. You know, what we smell, hear, taste, and touch through Lockwood's senses. And it's great. It's a great way to, to have a book. So much better than Mary Shelley's plotting interior monologues. You know, I feel this way, I feel that way. Everything's terrible. This is just, here I am. I'm trying to figure this thing out. I feel sick. I went upstairs to bed. There was this thing. You know, this funny piece of furniture inside this chick's name written over and over. I shut it and took up another and another till I had examined all. Catherine's library was select, and its state of dilapidation proved it to have been well used. Though not altogether for a legitimate purpose, scarcely one chapter had escaped a pen and ink commentary. 
at least the appearance of one, covering every morsel of blank that the printer had left. Some were detached sentences. Other parts took the form of a regular diary, scrawled in an unformed, childish hand. At the top of an extra page, quite a treasure probably when first lighted on, I was greatly amused to behold an excellent caricature of my friend Joseph, rudely yet powerfully sketched. So there's J- Joseph, the you know the with the, the the unintelligible accent written there, probably 25 years younger, as a little cartoon. He's been there all this time. An immediate interest kindled within me for the unknown Catherine, and I began forthwith to decipher her faded hieroglyphics. An awful Sunday, commenced the paragraph beneath. I wish my father were back again. Hindley is a detestable substitute. Has His conduct to Heathcliff is atrocious. H and I are going to rebel. We took our initiatory step this evening. All day had been flooding with rain. We could not go to church, so Joseph must needs get up a congregation in the garret, and while Hindley and his wife basked downstairs before a comfortable fire, doing anything but reading their Bibles, I'll answer for it, Heathcliff, myself, and the unhappy ploughboy were commanded to take our prayer books and mount. We were ranged in a row on a sack of corn, groaning and shivering and hoping that Joseph would shiver too, so that he might give us a short homily for his own sake. A vain idea. The service lasted precisely three hours, and yet my brother had the face to exclaim when he saw us descending, What, done already? Okay, so wait, who's her brother? Hindley? No, Hindley is the substitute father. His conduct to Heathcliff is atrocious. So did Heathcliff grow up in this house as well? It's all very confusing, and, and, and is meant to be. On Sunday evenings, we used to be permitted to play, if we did not make much noise. Now a mere titter is sufficient to send us into corners. You forget you have a master here, says the tyrant. I'll demolish the first who puts me out of temper. I insist on perfect sobriety and silence. Oh boy, was that you? Francis, darling, pull his hair as you go by. I heard him snap his fingers. (laughs) Francis pulled his hair heartily, and then went and seated herself on her husband's knee. And there they were, like two babies, kissing and talking nonsense by the hour. Foolish palaver that we should be ashamed of. We made ourselves as snug as our means allowed in. Oh, in the arch of the dresser. Oh, that's where where, uh, Lockwood is right now, in the arch of the dresser. And now I've lost my page. The, the book just snapped shut on me. Okay. The Arch of the Dresser. I had just fastened our pinafores together and hung them up for a curtain, when in comes Joseph on an errand from the stables. He tears down my handiwork, boxes my ears, and croaks, "'To Maester Norbert just buried, and Sabbath not oared, and to sand at gospel to still in your logs, and ye darby lakin, shame on ye, sit ye down, little children.' There's good books enough if you'll read them. Sit ye down and think of your souls. Okay. The, uh, the master's nubbit just buried. Nubbit, nubbit just buried. And Sabbath, not over. And here you're standing, and, and the sound of the gospel is still in your lungs. And what are you doing? What are you doing? You're goofing off, you goofs. But I got I to go to the footnotes here because there's something about buried. Okay. The master... Only just buried, and Sabbath not over, and the sound of the gospel still in your ears, and you dare to play. Shame on you. 
Sit yourselves down, bad children. There are enough good books if you will read them. Sit yourselves down and think of your souls. So the master is buried. Now, presumably that is Catherine's father, is the master. Uh, so who's so who's Hindley, substitute father, and Francis, who's she? It's all very confusing. My My head is spinning with all these names and this terrible tale of woe. Saying this, he compelled us so to square our positions that we might receive from the far-off fire a dull ray to show us the text of the lumber he thrust upon us. I, uh, I guess that means she, uh, he, he beat him in the butt. I could not bear the employment. I took my dingy volume by the scroop and hurled it into the dog kennel, vowing I hated a good book. Heathcliff kicked his to the same place. Then there was a hubbub. Maester Hindley shouted our chaplain, Maester, come hither. Miss Cathy's riven to back off the helmet of salvation, and Heathcliff's passed his fist into the first part of to broodway to destruction. It's fair flaysome, but you let him go, go on this gate. Ech! <laughs> God damn it. The old man ought to laced him properly, but he's gone. Okay, so basically saying, look, look at these terrible children have done. So Heathcliff clearly grew up there, along with Catherine. I guess they're not related, but it's unclear why Heathcliff is there or who he is. Hindley hurried up from his paradise on the hearth and seizing one of us by the collar and the other by the arm, hurled both into the back kitchen where Joseph asservated old Nick would fetch us as sure as we were living. And so comforted, we each sought a separate nook to await his advent. I reached this book and a pot of ink from the shelf, and I pushed the house door ajar to give me light, and I have got the time on with writing for twenty minutes, but my companion is impatient and proposes that we should appropriate the dairy woman's cloak and have a scamper on the moors under its shelter. A pleasant suggestion. And then, if the surly old man come in, he may believe his prophecy verified. We cannot be damper or colder in the rain than we are here. And that is the end of Catherine's little entry into her diary. Um, and I suppose we should end there. But so we're getting a different picture of Heathcliff now. We're getting a picture of Heathcliff as a boy or an adolescent, I suppose, full of some sort of mischief and maybe not quite merrymaking, but at least he has a kind of rebellious streak in him, uh, clearly besotted with Catherine in some form or another. It may just be a familial besotment, although I suspect not. And Catherine perhaps equally enamored with Heathcliff. So much so that she affixes his own name to hers when doodling. As for Linton, we do not yet know who Linton is. So, the family history is slowly becoming unspooled um, and, and surprising at every turn. First, we think, oh, this is Heathcliff's, this is Heathcliff's place. And then we think, oh, maybe it's not. Then it is. And uh, the kid, that's Heathcliff's kid. No, it's not. And the girl, that's Heathcliff's wife. No, it's his daughter. No, it's not. It's somebody else. And who knows who anybody is here? Oh, and that's the point of the book, I guess. You know, who, who knows who anybody is? I, I don't think that's the point of the book at all. But it's a little early to be drawing conclusions about what this book is about.
All we know is what Lockwood is telling us. And he's a fun narrator. He puts me in the mind of, uh, oh, geez, what's his name? Uh, uh, come on, Michael. I'm, I'm cranking up the old research machine here. See if it, see if it survived the uh, sultry savannah weather. You know, we've had a warm Christmas, as I suspect it's been warm everywhere. Nick Carraway is who I'm thinking of. Nick Carraway, the uh, narrator of The Great Gatsby. You know, somebody coming into this new world, looking on it with fresh eyes. I mean, you know, that's a it's a it's a pretty standard literary convention, but he calls to mind more Nick Carraway than say and in terms of years, the book is uh, much closer in time to when The Great Gatsby will be published than when Frankenstein was published. So I don't know, here we are. Interesting stuff. Um, fun story so far, well told, not a lot of fluff, kind of a just the facts ma'am story, which I like, uh, you know, less, less description, more doing, less interior monologuing, more exterior dialoguing, you know, more showing, less telling. That's what I like. And we're you know, we're getting, we're getting into it and we're enjoying it. I, I as always, I speak for you. We are enjoying it. It wasn't the royal we, where I was speaking of myself in the third person. I was commanding that you, too, are enjoying this book, this great American novel. So let us conclude uh, the next time I speak to you, the new year. And depending on when you are listening, it could be years hence, but let's just say the year 2022 will have begun. I have no great hopes for it seeing as the previous half decade have been a nightmare. But it's a nightmare that I've learned to live in and accommodate, and presumably the same will continue in the coming annum. So until then, uh, let's call it uh, an episode. I look forward to another, uh, I don't know, uh, comic episode of Obscure. But until then... I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black and get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening. <laughs>